Uh, reading is from Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 to 30, and can be found on page 969. 969. Adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully had already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than to lose your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Good, so we'll do keep that um, short and not very challenging passage at all. Open before you, won't you? I seem to pick these passages, don't I? It seems to be me. Good, well, we've just sung a prayer, haven't we? We've just sung Purify My Heart, and this is a challenging and sobering passage. So um, let's pray that the Lord would do that this morning. Loving Father, we do pray this morning that you would purify our hearts. We thank you that you're the Father who loves us, who delights in us and cares for us. And so we do pray, Lord, that you would use your word to us this morning to make us more holy, make us more like you, that you would be purifying our hearts. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> in his book, uh, Captured by a Better Vision, Tim Chester uh, quotes uh, a few surveys. And the first survey he quotes says that 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women are addicted to porn, whatever addicted means. One evangelical church leader uh, did a survey of the congregation, the men in his congregation, and he found that 60% of them had looked at porn in the last year. 25% of them had looked at porn in the last uh, 30 days. Another survey reported that church leaders, 33% of church leaders surveyed, and 36% of church members had looked at a sexually explicit website in the last year. And Tim Chester suggests that these figures will be much higher in the younger generations. Uh, lust is a huge issue in our culture. It's a, it's a huge issue in the church. And let's be honest, it'll be an issue here at St. Mary's. Of course it will be. So let me say to you this morning, if you struggle with lust, then you're not alone. At different points in my life, I've struggled with lust to greater or lesser extents. And to be honest, even at the very best times, it's always lurking in the background, not far away. If you were to ask a mature Christian teenager, what's his biggest struggle? I suspect, if he was honest, the answer would probably be lust and masturbation. Many teenage Christian girls lust after and long for the attention and care of boys. 
Now, many of you grew up in a, uh, a much more conservative era. Well, that era has gone. I, the sad truth is, I think it's, um, from the students I know, it's now, I think, highly unusual for Christian couples to a- arrive at their wedding night having never uh, stimulated each other through touch before. I think it's unlikely for lots of couples, Christ- Christian couples that the first time they see each other naked is on their wedding night. Uh, when, we're, um, when, you, when you're young, like me, you, um, you sort of long and live in hope that one day when your, your sex drive sort of stops and calms down a little bit, the lust won't be an issue. And I was talking to someone in their 70s this week who knocked that myth on the head for me. It's, for many, it's an issue that doesn't go away. Now, if this morning you can hand on heart say, look, this lust isn't an issue for me, then what a wonderful blessing that is for you. But keep listening because we're a church family. Now, we have a responsibility and a duty of care to love and support each other. In, a, in any culture, but particularly ours, Jesus' words this morning are, I think, extremely challenging. Let's just read verse 27, 28 again. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now remember what Jesus is doing in this, this, these Beatitudes. What he's doing is he's taking the Old Testament law, or often uh, the Pharisees and scribes' interpretation and application of the Old Testament law, and he's reshaping our understanding of how we're to live, or how, and showing how they've misunderstood it. So here, do not commit adultery. That's, that's the seventh commandment, isn't it? Very simple. Easy enough to understand. You are to be faithful in marriage, not to commit... You are not to commit the act of, physical act of sex outside of marriage with anyone else. But the religious leaders had reduced it to that alone. And so Jesus here broadens out the commandment and, and actually reveals the true implications of it. It's not just the physical act of adultery that's wrong, but also what happens in your heart. John Stott very helpfully says this, that any and every sexual practice that is immoral in deed is immoral also in look and thought. That's at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus, Jesus talks about adultery, but he's using it as an example, an illustration of a more general principle, which means that Jesus' words here apply whether you're married or single, whether you're male or female. So so what does it look like? What does it mean to look lustfully at someone? Well, I think the first thing to say is that there is a difference between our sexual drive and lust. Okay, those are not the same thing. It's not lust to be attracted to someone. It's not lust to have a desire for sex or to be excited about sex and look forward to sex in marriage, or even to experience sexual temptation. That's not lust. God has made us human, and part of our humanity is our sex drive. It's that that brings us together in marriage for procreation. 
And I think it's just worth saying that sex is a good gift from God, and we mustn't be prudish about it. We should be modest and appropriate about how we talk about it. But given how much the world thinks and talks and is shaped around sex, I think it comes across that we are completely inhuman if all we ever say on the, the, the issue of sex is negative or we don't say anything at all because we feel awkward. In Glenn Harrison, in, in his brilliant book on, on sex, says, says his big point is that we have a better story to tell as Christians about sex. So we should speak about that. Our sex drive is a good gift from God. But, but it can easily turn into lust if we don't control it rightly and restrain it in our lives. Now, John Piper describes lust as this. Lust is sexual desire minus honour and holiness. So what we do in lust is we take a good thing and we use it to serve ourselves rather than to honour others. We use it for our own personal gratification. And of course, lust dishonours God because it rejects his rule and does not reflect his holiness. Now, I think there, there are general patterns of difference between male and female. Uh, there is some crossover, but, but lust is an issue for men and women. Let's not kid ourselves about that. Men, I think, tend to be led into lust by the physical, something they hear, something they see, something they touch. I'm informed, though, for lots of women, it can be physical, but for others it's, it's more triggered, I guess, by the emotional, the romantic, the kind words of a caring man, the thoughtful gesture of a friend, the affectionate words of appreciation about the way you look. Now, those things can be the trigger that leads to desiring or lusting after something is forbid- that is forbidden. We lust after what we think will give us pleasure. The Pharisees and scribes, in, in limiting the seventh commandment just to the physical act, what they've done is actually to completely ignore the tenth commandment, isn't it? Which says, do not covet. To lust is to covet. It's to covet something that you can't have. So Jesus' command here is sobering and challenging. Any and every sexual practice that is immoral in deed is immoral also in look and thought. Now that is going to be a huge challenge for us to live out. And it's a huge challenge for us to live out because we live in such a sexualized culture. All the time we're encouraged to let our imaginations run wild, to dream, to fantasize either physically or emotionally. Uh, I sent uh, one of my spies into Debenhams this week to take some photos of the the adverts in the perfume and um, aftershave section. And to be honest, there's not many that I can show you. I'm not going to. They're all about, you know, spray more, get more. Some sort of makeup that, will, that lasts all night or keeps you up all night. Scantily clad women. 
and so on and so on and so on. That's Debenhams. If you turn on the TV music channels, a high proportion of the music videos you'll see will have scantily clad women in them, or men with their tops off, ripped torsos. They'll be singing about sex or love, choreography that's highly sexualized. Again, I thought I could show you a clip, but of course I can't, because it's just completely inappropriate. Ethan, uh, my oldest son, is in year two. And um, he recently came back from his school disco. And uh, I caught him singing in the kitchen the other day. And he was going, nah, 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 you're a sexy body. Right, okay. Where have you... Anyway, that was the song he sing, sang. And the actual the line that comes before that is this. It says, I'd like to get under your sexy body. He's year two. And that's what he's singing around the kitchen. He's just seeing the end part because he couldn't remember the first part. You head into town on a Friday or Saturday night and or tomorrow you wait for a sunny day and let's be honest guys, we don't really know where to look, do we? And many universities now have pole dancing societies. Once upon a time, if you wanted to access porn, you had to go through the embarrassment of walking into a newsagent and taking the magazine off the top shelf and then buying it. These days, you just type it into your phone. No one has to see. No one knows. And, and the cultural narrative of our day about marriage is that, well, it's not for life anymore, and it's not really something you work at, is it? It's, it's as good for as long as it's good for you. Films, books, magazines, they, they paint a picture of the type of man that you could be with. And if your man doesn't compare, well... Perhaps it's time to look elsewhere. And Jesus is going to speak into that sexualized culture and he's going to say strong things. And the first thing he's going to really point out is this, the lust of the heart begin with our eyes. Verse verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. See, the adultery committed in our hearts, verse 28, starts in our eyes. What we lust for in our, in our hearts, we have to see first in our eyes, either with the eyes of our flesh or the eyes of our imagination. John Stott, again, helpful as ever, says this, I doubt if ever human beings have fallen victim to immorality who have not first opened the sluice gates of passion through their eyes. Similarly, whenever men and women have learned sexual self-control indeed, It is because they have first learned it in the eyes of both flesh and fantasy. What you see in your eyes affects your hearts. And of course, Job in the Old Testament knew that to be true, doesn't he? When he's defending his morality to his friends, he says this. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. He knows what he sees shapes his heart. And he continues, if my steps had turned from the path, if my heart had been led by my eyes, or if my hands had been defiled, if my heart had been enticed by a woman. And he's saying, I haven't. I haven't done those things because I made a covenant with my eyes. The things we see strike us. If you're like me and you're rubbish with a rubbish memory, you probably can't remember much of what happened 15 years ago and where you were and what you're doing and events. But I'll tell you what you might remember. 
You might remember a picture you saw. You might remember the scene from a film that you saw. A conversation you had with someone where you saw it with your eyes or in the eyes of your imagination and you allowed it into your heart and you treasured it and pondered it and it's stuck with you ever since. The gesture of love and kindness that caused you to think, oh, what if I'd married him? What we lust for in our hearts begins in our eyes of flesh or of fantasy. And so very practically, we do just need to think about what we wear, don't we? I think it's probably more of a question, for the, uh, an issue for the younger generation. But we need to think about what our, we're letting our children wear. We should aim to dress attractively, not seductively. Uh, and um, I was reading a bit, there's a ba- book called Every Men's Battle, and one of the things that they talk about there is how we need to bounce our eyes. There's a difference between looking and lusting. You can't help looking, but you can help looking again. Uh, you can't help looking, but you, you can help lingering. And so one of the disciplines is that we bounce our eyes. We look, but we bounce our eyes and we look away. I've, I've got a gym membership in town, and uh, I have to remember that I have to be disciplined in bouncing my eyes. And as a, as a church family, as individuals, we must be disciplined in this. We must work hard, because, well, because eternity is at stake is at stake. Jesus is saying we need to be ruthless with lust because eternity is stake. Is it stake? Eternity is stake. <laughs> is at stake. The imagery in these verses is stark. Chop out your eyes. Cut off your hands. It's ruthless. Now Jesus doesn't mean that we are literally to do that. After all, why does he just stop at the right eye? What about the left? No, it's more about mortification than mutilation. Putting to death the sin of the body rather than actually chopping bits off. And Jesus says, don't just cut off or gouge out what causes you to sin. Uh, Fling it away from you. Throw it away. Run from it. Put it to death. Jesus is commanding here a ruthless self-denial. And it starts with our eyes. Whatever you see, whatever tempts you to lust in your heart, Jesus says, remove it, flee from it, chuck it away. I, um, I met someone uh, recently who had um, looked at pornography on their computer for the first time. And they were absolutely gutted about it. And uh, he said to me, so I've, um, I've not opened my computer again. Now, that might sound extreme. And I'm not suggesting that that is what you should do. There's other solutions. But you've got to admire the ruthlessness of that chap. Too many of us won't deal with lust because either we'll like it too much or we'll justify it by saying, well, it's just the way I am. It's just the way God made me. Jesus says, be ruthless. Chop it out, gouge it off, cut it off. Turn the music channels off your TV. Set up internet protection and restrictions for yourselves and your kids. Download Buy Covenant Eyes. It's a 
a piece of software that logs everything you look at online and sends a report to your accountability partner and flags up anything that's inappropriate. Think about what films you watch yourselves or allow your children to watch. Uh, a few years ago, there was a film called American Pie. It was sort of a cult classic teen movie, rated 15. The whole movie is about four lads making a, a pact to try and lose their virginity before prom night. And of course, they all do it. And the film is filled with sexual nudity. Is that good for you to watch? Is that good for your kids to watch? Oh, what about films like Love Actually, Notting Hill, Bridget, Holmes, Bridget Jones' Diary, Pride and Prejudice? Oh, Mr. Darcy. You know, what do these films encourage us to long for, to look for? What emotions do they stir in you? You see, if films like these are going to cause you to lust either physically or emotionally, then Jesus says, flee from them. Chop them out. Don't go near them. Uh, Jane and I um, have enjoyed, really enjoyed watching a, a series, a TV series called The Good Wife. Uh, sort of a legal drama with all sorts of relationship issues. But one of the interesting things about the programme is that the main character, Alicia, you find yourself wanting her to be unfaithful to her husband, willing her to do it. It's very powerful TV. What's it teaching us about what marriage is and what relationships are? What's it causing us to long for? Now look, it's not my job this morning to stand up the front and tell you what you should or shouldn't watch. It'll be different for all of us. Different things will cause different other will will cause us to stumble in different ways. But what we must do, and Connie talked about this on Wednesday night, is we must engage our brains when we watch. We must be able to step back and understand Corin, I've done it again, Corin. Um, we must be able to step back from these things and understand what they're trying to say to us. We need to talk with our kids about what they watch. And if in doubt, we're to flee, run. It might be that you have to fast forward bits through films. Um, Mark Ashton, who is the, the late vicar at St Andrews the Great in Cambridge, uh, Jane had been around his house for a few hours to watch a film and they were given a cushion. And whenever inappropriate moments in the film came up, they were to raise their cushions. It's quite a light-hearted way, but it made, a, it made a point. It might be that you have to avoid certain places, books, conversations. Jesus says, be ruthless with lust. Be ruthless. And he says, be ruthless because eternity is at stake. Again, Stott says this, it is, is it better? It is better to forego some experiences this life offers in order to enter the life which is life indeed. It is better to accept some cultural amputation in this world than risk final destruction in the next. Jesus' warning is deadly serious here. Remember what we said earlier about lust? Lust disregards God. Now, look, don't mishear me. If you struggle with lust, that does not disqualify you from faith. Of course it doesn't. But it should be a warning to us because what you do, what you do with your eyes will shape 
what you do with your heart. And inclining your heart away from God and to yourself is a very dangerous game to play when eternity is at stake. So Jesus says to you and I this morning, he says, which world are you going to live for? And to live out this, this ruthless attitude lust, we, to lust, we should expect some abuse from others. What do you mean you've not seen that film? Everyone's seen that film. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with dressing like this? Why won't you come with us tonight? The rugby lads that I used to play rugby with would, on a night out, normally go to the strip club at the end of the night. And I just, boys, I'm not going. What do you mean you're not going? Of course we're all going. You see, being ruthless with lust might feel uncomfortable. I was once at, um, uh, very recently actually, I was at a bit of a social gathering, there was loads of Christians there, and um, uh, we had, uh, it was all Christians, and we had uh, music channels on in the background. They'd been turned on before I arrived, and uh, I don't know if anyone else noticed, but the content of the videos caught my eyes, and I just thought, it's just graphic, fairly sexually provocative, lots of scantily clad women. And I thought, you know, we should probably turn that off, really, shouldn't we? But I didn't say anything. And I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be the prude. I didn't want to be the sort of the weak guy over there in the corner who struggles when the rest of us are fine. But for the benefit of everyone else, not just, myse- not just myself, I should have just turned it off, or at least asked if we could turn it off. Because Jesus says, be ruthless. Ruthless with sin. As we um, draw to a close, I want to finish with um, four things. Four things that I think we need to help us in our battle against lust. And the first is this. We need the people of God. We would all love to keep this issue private, wouldn't we? You guys enjoy listening to sermons on this as much as I love preaching it. Yeah, and you never quite know where to look, do you, when the preacher's preaching? If, if I look at him, does that mean I'm guilty? If I look down, does that mean I'm guilty? No one knows what to do. But we just need to be honest and admit that this is an issue and we, we can't keep it private. There is no one in this room who is not a sexual sinner in some way. And so it might be that off the back of this today, you need to go away and speak to a friend. Speak to your spouse and confess your sin and ask them to pray for you and help you. A couple of people came up to me after the first service. But the one thing we can't do is do nothing, because Jesus says, be ruthless. And we need to think about how we, how we treat others in our church family. If, if you're married, this is, this is so obvious, isn't it, when I say it, but if you're married, it's really not helpful to talk about your sex life with people who aren't. I mean, it's obvious, but you'd be amazed. Beware of idle chats, the jokes you make. And if you're single, don't, be, don't assume that just because your friends are married, that means they're all fine and the issues go away. Oh, that that would be true. It's a complete myth. Married people need help and encouragement too. As God's people, we need to remember the weaker brother, doesn't it? Just because you might not struggle with some of these things, there'll be plenty of people around you who, who do. 
So sometimes you might need to turn that TV off, not for your own sake, but for the sake of others. That's what church family do. Men, we need to be gracious and kind towards women. But we also need to beware of exclusivity. Uh, Beware of listening to one woman more than any others. For that sort of attention can be unhelpful. (laughs) Don't go to the opposite extreme. You know, the the guys who can't even look at a woman because, you know, we're very attractive and we don't want to cause them to stumble. Let's, Let's not go to that extreme. No, we need to be Christian brothers, don't we? We need to be loving and kind and gracious and gentle, but not exclusive and not secretive. Beware of anything that's done in secret. So we need the people of God to help us in the battle. The second thing we need is the the grace of God. I think lust is probably one of these things that causes us to feel guilty and ashamed more than lots of other stuff. And so we need to remember that on the cross, Jesus deals with our shame and guilt. He is shamed so that I need not be. He is innocent but is found guilty so that I, the guilty one, and you, the guilty one, may be found innocent. So if you feel the conviction of God's word today, don't wallow in guilt. Repent and believe the gospel of grace and experience forgiveness. And God's grace also means, doesn't it, that, doesn't it, it means that there can be victory over lust. Because Jesus has given us new life. Romans 5 and 6, this wonderful, wonderful chapter, that sin no longer reigns over us. We are in Christ. He's one. And he says, I will not tempt you but beyond what you can bear. There can be victory over lust. So do not battle to be ruthless without hope. For Christ has won, Christ has conquered. The people of God, the grace of God. Thirdly, the goodness of God. Now there's all sorts of reasons that might cause us to lust after someone. But one of the reasons deep down is that we doubt God's goodness. So let me explain what I mean. We, we can find ourselves justifying our lust because we don't feel that God has treated us fairly. So single people can feel frustration and sadness at never being able to marry and enjoy sexual union. And married people can feel frustration and sadness at a dysfunctional marriage or unmet, unrealistic expectations about relationships and marriage, both physically and emotionally. Lust and masturbation are, for many people, a stress relief, a freeing of tension, a way of relieving tension. And in all these different situations, what we do is we doubt God's goodness. We can feel bitter, overwhelmed, And so rather than trusting in God, we turn on him. We look to comfort ourselves, not in him and his good plans, but in ourselves. Lord, if you really wanted me to be happy, you would have. It's okay for me to do this because, you know, 
If you really love me, the treat will be better. And therefore, when it comes to being ruthless with lust, John Piper says this, and I think it's the whole, um, this is the reason behind Tim Chester's book, Captured by a Better Vision. He says this, we must fight fire with fire. The fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus, we will fail. We must fight it with the massive promise of superior happiness. We must swallow up the little flicker of lust pleasure in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. Conflagration just means a massive fire. See what Piper's saying? He's saying the only way that we will conquer lust is not just by hearing Jesus' commands here and feeling the, oh, I must do better. No, it's by looking at God, seeing his goodness, and seeing that there is a greater pleasure, a greater comfort, a more perfect satisfaction in God and in him alone. And it's only when you realise that that you will bounce your eyes, that you will guard your imaginations, you'll protect your hearts, you'll turn off your TV. We need a better vision of God and his goodness to us. And finally, we need the help of the Spirit. The, the wonderful truth of, one of the wonderful truths of Christianity is that God doesn't just leave us alone in the battle. Go on, go on, you get on with over there. No, you see, he comes and joins us. He comes and dwells in us by his Spirit. And he says, I'm going to sanctify you. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you more like Jesus. And as we battle lust, as we try and be ruthless, we need to remember that God is more committed to that battle than you will ever be. He is more committed to making you holy, getting rid of lust from your life than you will ever be. So let's finish with these words from Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Let's pray. Just a moment to pause, to reflect. Loving Father, these are challenging and sobering words from your Son. And in our culture and society, they seem incredibly hard words for us to live out. And some of us this morning know just how hard that command is. So Father, this morning we confess our sin, we confess our failings and our shame. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness and your forgiveness. And we thank you for your help 
Spirit of God, would you make us more like the Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we do pray that you would changing us, be changing us and moulding us and shaping us into your likeness, to be more like your Son. Please give us victory over this uh, issue of lust. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.